Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon. I'm an astrobiologist and an author, and I'm here with my good friend, com- comedic co host, Chuck Nice. Hey, Dr. Funky Spoon. How are How you, are Chuck? You? Oh, man, it's <laughs> great to be here with you as always. Oh, yeah. Always a good time. Yes. And our, our topic today, we're going to be talking about Pluto, Uh-oh. and in particular, uh, the fact that now we've had a couple of years almost to digest mm-hmm. the information. After Plexit? From the uh, <laughs> Plexit. I call it, I call it Plexit. <laughs> no, That's... no, no. We're not referring to Plexit. We're referring to the Pluto flyby That's right. of New Horizons in July 2015, and we've had a couple of years to digest that information and start to get a picture in our minds of what, what that place is really like, and, mm-hmm. and one way that uh, we can phrase the question that refers to something that people on the team have said, and we'll, we'll unpack this a bit, but it's the question, is Pluto the new Mars? What? Uh, you'll, you'll see why, why I'm asking it that way in, oh, in I, a few minutes. Our I guest, can't, can't our guest is going to help us. On Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> our guest is going to help us understand uh, the question, and, and we're very pleased to have with us as a guest, Dr. John Spencer, who's a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. And John is an old friend of mine. We've known each other for a ridiculous number of decades. I'm not even going to try to count. But uh, we went to grad school together, and uh, John is an amazingly versatile and creative planetary scientist. You know, a lot of times we break up what we do and we say, that person's a theorist or that person's an observer. Yes. Uh, uh, John kind of does it all. He observes with telescopes, he observes the spacecraft, but he also does theory. He studies the atmospheres, but also the the surfaces of, of different worlds. He's an expert in the, uh, the moons of the outer solar system. He's observed volcanoes on Io from a volcano in Hawaii. What? Um, and uh, he's done all kinds of really cool stuff, made a lot of important discoveries. But today he's, he's visiting us because uh, in his capacity as a member of the science team of the New Horizons spacecraft, which flew by Pluto yeah. in July 2015. And John actually uh, wore many hats on that, uh, on, has worn many hats on that project, continues to work on it, and maybe he'll tell us about some, some of those. But um, welcome, John Spencer, to uh, Star Talk All-Stars. Thanks for being here with us. I'm very happy to be here, and uh, good to hear from you, David Unchuck. And how many years have you been working? I know you were uh, already involved with the project um, before the launch, and the launch was in 2006. When did, when did you start working on New Horizons? Well, I started on New Horizons when we wrote a proposal with that name on it, which was in 2001, uh, when NASA had requested teams to propose um, missions to Pluto. And we were lucky enough to be the proposal that, that won that competition. But I'd been working with Alan Stern, who's the leader of the mission, and really the, the genius behind the whole thing, uh, as long ago as, I think it was 1993, when he asked me to uh, help out with a study of possible cameras for uh, future missions to Pluto, uh, which were at that point very much in the distant future. We didn't know when that would actually happen. Um, so, yeah, it's been since uh, two, uh, 1993 so it's that been I started a, this. It's been a long time coming. You guys have been thinking about Pluto and trying to get a spacecraft there. Um, did you did you have some ever have any doubts that it was actually going going to work? Um, like as 
you were approaching? Did you think, oh, man, this is too complicated? Where you know, the too many things could go wrong? Or did it did it did it surprise you that it that it actually worked? Um, no, I think we uh, you have to go into these things with the attitude that you've given a great deal of thought to all the possible things that uh, might go wrong, and you figured out how to react to those things, how to make sure they don't happen, or how if they do happen, then the effects won't be. Uh, disastrous. So we we spent years just thinking of all those eventualities and coming up with plans. That by the time we got there, we were pretty sure we we're going to be pretty bulletproof. Um, and so we were very confident going in by the time we got there. So John, did anything go wrong that you actually had in your contingencies? Like, did you plan on something going wrong and then it actually happened? Because that's that's got to be kind of cool, right? Like, you mm-hmm. you think something might go wrong, and then it goes wrong, and you're like, yeah, it went wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what went wrong, but we're ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was there was one example of that that was a bit scary when it, when it happened that was about uh, 10 days before we got there, we had a, a crash of the main computer on the spacecraft, and people were listening to the transmissions coming in and the transmissions just suddenly cut out and we heard nothing from the spacecraft for about an hour. And then it started sending back diagnostic information saying, hey, I've had this problem. This is, you know, what the configuration of the spacecraft was and all that information. And so uh, that was something that went wrong and it went wrong uh, uncomfortably close to the encounter, but still with 10 days for us to fix it and get the spacecraft running again. So you've been travel- um, traveling towards Pluto for nine years at that point, basically. <laughs> and with 10 days to go, the thing decides that that's when it's going to crash. That's pretty cool. And that was one of the contingencies that we had uh, planned for, in that what we were doing when it crashed was we were uploading to the spacecraft the detailed sequence of instructions telling it everything to do when it flew past Pluto. That's a long and complicated series of commands that get loaded onto the computer. And we knew there was some risk with that process. And so we, instead of telling it to do that a couple of days before the encounter, we had deliberately uh, spaced that activity to be about 10 days beforehand so that if something did go wrong with it, we would have time to recover. And so indeed something went wrong, but we had time to recover. And it it cost a lot of engineers a lot of sleep Mm -hmm. uh, for a few days um, literally because they would send the spacecraft to command, okay, reboot the computer, right. and uh, then it would take four and a half hours for that command to get to the spacecraft. And then four and a half hours later for the command, for the spacecraft to report back, yeah, okay, I've rebooted, now what do I do? That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> that it's, that is- it's so far away that the speed of light means that it's really slow. We think of the speed of light as fast, right. generally. But at this point, it's it's an annoyance to you how slow, slow it, is it is when slow. when there's spacecrafts at Pluto. It takes four and a half hours. Exactly. It's almost like when you're uh, when you're with your GPS on your phone, and you you realize that this GPS on your phone is bouncing a signal off of a satellite in space. But if it if it says recalculating, you're like, come on, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. Imagine trying to trying to GPS on Pluto. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so, which, so which I, we do kind of do in a way. Th- that's right. So, so, so yeah. I, we really, I really want to get on to the science and what we learned there. But I just have to ask you one more question, um, which I'm sure you could talk at length about. But just tell, give us an impression. What what was it like? I mean, you finally get there. You've been traveling for nine years. You've been working on the project for even longer. And then, in a matter of a few days, you go from the approach where you're still kind of wondering what you're going to see to uh, Pluto's in the rearview mirror, and you've gotten some pictures down, and you've, uh, you know, it's you've been there. What what was that experience like? It was pure exhilaration. It was just the most, um, probably the most amazing experience of my life to be part of that team, seeing all those plans that we've been working on for so many years coming to fruition, to see everything working so well, and just to see Pluto be so amazing and make those discoveries in real time, have a whole new world revealed to us in a matter of days or even hours uh, when it came right down to a few of the key images. And it was just it was just an incredible ride. Well, thanks for uh, being here to share that experience with us a little bit. So uh, let, let's talk about the science now, what, what we learned there. Um, is Pluto the new Mars, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, our friend Jeff Moore came up with that uh, concept, and I kind of like it. It's, it captures how, what a complex and fascinating world Pluto is. Um, Mars, we've been exploring for many decades now with spacecraft. We've learned a great deal about it. We've learned it's a world with enormous variety. And we know quite a lot about some of the specifics that happened there. And of course, now we have robots crawling around on its surface. And uh, we, we've learned a great deal about that world. Um, and Pluto is a world we've only just met in terms of its geology. Um, but it's immediately looking Mars-like in a surprising number of ways. It's surprising because it's um, 15 times further from the sun than Mars is. It's quite a bit smaller. It's about a third of the size of Mars. Um, It's made of completely different stuff. Mars is a ball of rock with Mm -hmm. a ball of iron in the center. Pluto is a ball of ice with a ball of rock in the center. So the surface that we see is pretty much all ice and not just uh, plain old water ice like you find in your refrigerator, but it's covered in all these other exotic ices of nitrogen and methane and so on. Um, So it's made of totally different stuff, but it's a world that looks similar to Mars in many ways. It may be the biggest way, the most striking way, is that it has an enormous range of surface ages. There are parts of Pluto's surface that are really ancient. They've been beaten up by countless impacts of comets and interplanetary debris that have covered the surface in shoulder-to-shoulder craters. And we know that kind of bombardment hasn't happened uh, since four billion years ago. So we know those surfaces are about four billion years old. And there there are other areas that are so young, they're being so actively uh, regenerated that all trace of any kind of craters has disappeared. And these are surfaces that are probably less than a million years old. And Mars has that same kind of variety, really ancient, heavily cratered regions and very smooth, young regions. Um, that's, really, that's, that's, that's really amazing that, that it has that kind of variety. We've been talking about how Pluto is 
the new Mars. And we're going to uh, now um, take a, a, some audience questions. Um, Chuck, I understand we've got some cosmic queries from yes. the listeners. Yes, we do. The very popular cosmic queries that we have taken from all over the internet. So why don't we jump right into it? And um, Teresa Turnaprovich. Turnaprovich. All right, Teresa, uh, your last name uh, was just butchered by Chuck Nice. Uh, since Pluto is our outermost planetary body, presumably being held in orbit by the weakest gravity to our sun, how much force would be needed to remove it from our solar system altogether? How would this new eight-planet system have any effects on Earth? Okay, so she just basically wants to... Uh, uh, kick Pluto out. I don't know why, but uh, you know, here is Teresa saying, "All right, uh, we have some kind of uh, massive collision with Pluto and knocks it uh, right off its uh, orbit." Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, there have been people that have attempted to, uh, through nomenclature, to uh, cast Pluto out, but she wants to actually physically. Chiefs. She is physically acting as the bouncer to our solar system <laughs> and lifting the velvet rope and saying, Pluto, you are out of here. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's, I mean, in terms of how much force, you know, I, 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 is she asking for a, a quantitative answer? Like, the, I would have to do a calculation, and I'm not prepared well, to do that know, in my head. But in terms I, of... Yeah. No, in terms of an impact, what kind yeah. of impact yeah. would it take, and what type of... What, what, what size asteroid would it take to, you know, collide with Pluto and then send it maybe towards the Kuiper Belt? Yeah, well, it's funny. We used to think that Pluto was an escaped moon of of uh, Neptune, oh, really? um, although now it's it's the other way around, but people think that uh, Plu uh, the Neptune's moon Triton was once a Pluto-like body in orbit around the sun that got captured by Neptune. But it is true that All planets planets interact mm -hmm. and, and gravitationally, and sometimes they get tossed out of the solar system. This happened a lot early on in the history of the solar system. I'm not sure. Um, John, what do you think? Is there something we can imagine that would happen now or in the future that would actually toss Pluto out of the solar system? Um, well, uh, it's pretty stable right now. Mm -hmm. The um, Pluto is in this interesting relationship with Neptune. If Pluto ever came close to Neptune, Neptune could easily throw Pluto out of the solar system. Hmm. And uh, we think Neptune did probably throw many Pluto-like bodies out of the solar system uh -huh. early in the solar system history when everything was chaotic and orbits were crossing and um, anything was possible. Uh, but now Pluto has settled into a relationship where for every three orbits of Neptune around the sun, Pluto orbits the sun twice. Um, and that's a pretty exact mathematical relationship. And the upshot of that is that uh, whenever Pluto is close to Neptune's orbit, Neptune is somewhere else in its orbit. And so they never actually get very close to each other. So that prevents that kind of uh, throwing out from happening. And so I think Pluto's pretty safe at this point. Uh, it's probably one of the lucky survivors from that chaotic early, early stage where many of its siblings would have been 
tossed yeah, so out. There, so there may have been, may have been, uh, may have been Pluto-like planets that were mm-hmm. tossed out, but mm-hmm. Pluto's probably safe. That's good to know. Yeah, well, there you have it. So I've learned two things. One, uh, Pluto, right place, right time. Yeah. Deal with it. Deal with and it. And two... <laughs> I, th- I think uh, I think we're going to have to take a break. Okay. Um, we'll come back with some more Cosmic Queries in, in uh, just a few minutes. Uh, you've been listening to Star Talk All-Stars. Okay, welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. I'm here with Chuck Nice. Yes, yes. And our guest, planetary scientist John Spencer. And we are discussing Pluto. Is Pluto the new Mars? Hmm. We're going to find out. Chuck, uh, let's uh, let's have another uh, cosmic query from yes. the uh, from the audience. Shall we? Let's uh, let's see what John Snow from Facebook wants to know. And uh, John says this. Pluto, Charon, is a binary dwarf planet system with five moons. Mars is a planet with two moons, both with decaying orbits. They are not the same. And there's a question mark at the end of that? Uh, uh, yeah, it's really, it's not. It's just a statement. <laughs> I made it into a question. <laughs> he, he actually put it at, they are not the same. So, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously. Which, which really, I, I read this because yeah. is Pluto the new Mars? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, obviously they're not the same. Like, no, if you asked any planetary scientist, if you showed them the two pictures, they wouldn't get confused and say, oh, I thought that one was Mars. But there's some interesting parallels. Um, and John was getting at one of them before, just the range and surface ages. I think people say Pluto is a new Mars because the scientists, we want to convey to to people how remarkable this new world that we've f- explored for the first time is. It's not like um, some of the other icy worlds in the outer solar system that are ancient um, and they're full of craters, or there's just one thing going on. There's so many things going on. And as John said, there's this range of ages from you know ancient, as old as it gets in the solar system, heavily cratered, to places that, that seem like like they're just happening yesterday, they're like the, like they, it could be alive now. So, and that that's like Mars, where you have ancient areas and um, and very modern areas. Uh, John, I mean, but the questioner mentioned the the moon systems in particular. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about the Pluto moon system that that sort of compares in an interesting way to the to the Martian moons? Yeah, I think in terms of moons, uh, Pluto isn't as much like Mars as it is in many other ways. Um, in that, Pluto has this one giant moon, Charon, which is like nothing uh, analogous to that at Mars. Uh, but Pluto has these four little moons, which are actually are kind of similar to the two little moons of Mars, that they are much, much smaller than Pluto itself um, and are orbiting in Pluto's equator. We're not sure how they got there and we're not sure how Pluto's, sorry, we're not sure how Mars's moons got there either. Um, And they're kind of irregularly shaped objects. They're too small for the gravity to pull them into spherical shape. So the moons are those little moons are kind of like Mars's moons, but the things that are most striking about the similarities between Pluto and Mars are with Pluto and its atmosphere itself rather than with its moon. Yeah, and, and about that atmosphere, I mean, uh, one of the weird things about Pluto is the way that its atmosphere interacts with its surface. And isn't, right. there, kind of, isn't there kind of a Mars-like angle there as well? Absolutely. 
uh, Mars's atmosphere is mostly made of carbon dioxide, and Pluto's atmosphere is mostly made of nitrogen. So they're made of different stuff, but uh, in both cases, the surface temperature is close to the freezing point of the, uh, the atmosphere. So on Mars, uh, during the winter, a lot of that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will freeze out on the, on the polar caps. And so the atmosphere actually gets quite a bit thinner in the, uh, the winter period when that freezing out has happened. And on Pluto as well, in the winter, uh, the nitrogen freezes out on the surface. And so the atmospheric pressure on Pluto can vary hugely uh, during Pluto's year. And the amount of frost on the surface will also vary a lot. So the, uh, the physics there is very similar, even though they, you're dealing with very different stuff. And you've got the main stuff in the atmosphere, which is exchanging between surface material and atmosphere material. It's as if on Earth, like the, it was cold enough so that the nitrogen itself was, was snowing out. It would be mm -hmm. very... Very strange. So, it, yeah, what a what a bizarre thing to have a have a world doing. What what right. do you got, Chuck? Do you have any more uh, cosmic queries for us? Yes, we do. Um, here's a very simple one from Luke Horn, who wants to know this: What's the weird heart thing on Pluto? Oh yeah, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. J J John. What's the weird heart thing on Pluto? Well, uh, we we understand half of it better than we understand the other half. It's it's if you want to be, think of it that way, it's like a broken heart with two parts that are actually rather different from each other. Oh, that's um, so sweet. I know. It's a little it's, sad. Uh -oh. It's a little sad. Um, but the one part that we understand pretty well at this point is a huge hole in the ground. Um, and we think it's probably the result of some massive collision of an object with Pluto that dug this big crater uh, early in Pluto's history. But it's now full of nitrogen that has frozen out into that that hole and filled it up probably several miles thickness of of nitrogen and that nitrogen is very bright and so it forms this distinctive shape that we saw in the images when we were approaching and that forms the uh left hand side of pluto's heart the left ventricle yes <laughs> <laughs> now the, the right hand side of pluto's heart is it's very bright, and so it kind of forms the other half of the heart, makes that nice symmetric shape. But when you look at it up close, it looks nothing like the left half. It's uh, rugged mountains and glaciers and uh, some regions with craters and enormous pits and all kinds of weird stuff we don't understand. But it's all coated with this very bright sort of paint job of mostly frozen methane, which we think is probably deposited on that region next to the the left ventricle if you like of this nitrogen deposit somehow being influenced by that the left ventricle that's causing stuff to freeze out on the right hand part uh, but we don't understand that side of it so so well at this point so that left hand side that's that you said it's like a big basin full of of solid nitrogen is that area that uh is called uh uh, Tombow Regio, named after uh, Clyde Tombow, the d discoverer of um, Pluto, mm. and um, and it's um, it's got that weird uh, convecting nitrogen that looks like like cells or looks like the surface mm. of the sun or something. I remember John right um, at the time of the New Horizons flyby. I remember you remarking that if somebody had told you that the the first ever close-up picture of Pluto would have zero impact craters in it because it was such a young surface that you 
you wouldn't even have believed it. Well, now you've had two years to wrap your head around that. I mean, are you are you surprised at what an active world Pluto is? Um, we are certainly surprised by that. Um, yeah, those some of the first images we saw uh, in close-up were of the more recent regions. They were around the edges of uh, Sputnik Planitia. The names get confusing, but that's the, the name of this flat area of convecting nitrogen, uh, which is part of Tombaugh Regio. Uh, that region, we think, is very young because this miles-thick thick deposit of nitrogen um, is very mobile, and you can add just a little bit of heat to the bottom of that nitrogen, it will start to convect. And when you look down on it, it looks kind of like the surface of the sun, but it looks, I kind of think of it looking like looking down on a bowl of miso soup, mm-hmm. um, which you you see the little uh, particles in that moving around as the soup cools down, and they it's form making me these, hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they form these network of of cells, regions where it's it's moving upwards and moving down again, and that's very much what we're seeing in this region. And that can happen very quickly on Pluto, um, even with the little bit of radioactive heat that's coming out of the interior of Pluto. Mm. And so that's continually welling up and uh, erasing any craters that might have formed on the surface and then dropping back down again and mixing that whole region up. So, John, let me ask you this. You were talking about um, the the surface and how, you know, you have this smoothing. And so it's there's some kind of resurfacing going on. Pluto being so icy, is, is, is there some kind of Plutonian Zamboni that's up there <laughs> smoothing stuff over? How does, how does the resurfacing happen? Uh, well, it's happening from underneath. Ah. So... Uh, you don't need a Zamboni on, on the surface because it's it's continually churning. If you would, could could take a movie, you know, over a million years or so, you'd see um, upwelling in the middle of each of these cells that cover the surface of Sputnik, Planitia, um, and stuff flowing outward and then sinking down again at the edges. Mm. Um, so that's very effectively pushing aside the old surface, probably reabsorbing it into the interior of those regions and just continually refreshing it from underneath. Cool. What's surprising to me is that nobody um, anticipated that, because actually, uh, you know, it, they, they roughly knew how much heat was coming out of the interior of Pluto just from the, uh, the radioactive material. They knew that it had nitrogen from the spectra and stuff, and I, 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 the remote spectra of the planet. And when I talk to people like Jeff... Moore or John Spencer or Bill McKinnon or Alan Stern, all these scientists involved in the mission. I say, well, so you knew all these parts. Why didn't you anticipate that? And they thought, they said, yeah, we probably should have thought of that. If we had thought a little bit harder, we probably would have. But I guess that's why we explore, because we find things that we weren't expecting. And then after the fact, we say, oh, yeah, we, we can explain that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> the key bit of the puzzle that we probably didn't think of is... If you dig a big hole on Pluto, um, that will naturally fill up with nitrogen. Well, we did think of that part of it, um, but we didn't really think that if it was a really big hole, that nitrogen sh- could get miles thick. And once it's once it gets miles thick, that it start it doesn't just act like a snowbank and sit there, but it actually starts to move and convex like that. Um, yeah, solid nitrogen is weird stuff. Even at the very cold temperatures of Pluto, it's still it's not that solid. It's very squishy, which is right. what. what uh, allows it to do that sort of churning convection. Right. 
but we don't think that's the whole story. Um, that part, maybe if we'd, you know, been a little bit smarter, we, we could have figured out. But there's, um, there's more going on. There's the fact that that churning nitrogen appears to be somehow breaking off enormous chunks of the ice crust itself. Um, the, wa the, water, the water ice crust is uh, right, breaking off. Yes. Huh. Um, most of Pluto's crust on this big hole in the ground that the, that the nitrogen is filling up, most of the crust is made of water ice, uh, which is rock hard at Pluto temperatures. Mm. Yeah, so ju uh, just as Pluto is the new Mars, uh, wa water is the, is the new, uh, ice is the new rock, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so... But enormous chunks of the crust, mountain-sized chunks, have been broken up and somehow got moved around by all this flowing nitrogen. So it's not just the nitrogen that has formed these young surfaces, but there are young-looking mountains around it uh, that are made of ice and yet have been moved around and jostled enough by all this nitrogen motion that they themselves look pretty young. And we don't see craters on them either. Wow. So the nitrogen is actually a force that's also affecting the geology of the surrounding bedrock of water ice. Right. That's pretty crazy, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. What What else do we have, Chuck? Do we have more questions? Oh, yes, we do. We got John Johns. John Johns. Uh, coming to us from Twitter, John says this. Could we put people on Pluto one day? And how long would it take to get them there, and how long would it take for our signals to reach them when communicating? Huh. Is there any interest in going to Pluto? I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, uh, you know, one day we're going to put a man on Pluto. Well, my, my view is that ultimately people will probably go to all these places just because people are kind of nuts. And if you think about Earth, there's all kinds of places where you wouldn't have, um, when we were all back in Africa, you might not have predicted people would go to Antarctica. Right. Or, for or that matter, the moon. I mean, people, right. it's, it's something in our nature is just to go to places because or, they're there. Or right? Camden, New Jersey. Or Camden, New Jersey. Exactly. Or, or Utah, you <laughs> right. know, go to live there. So yeah. I bet they will. Um, and I'll be interested to hear John's point of view. One, one thing I'll point out is that it would take people longer than it took New Horizons to get there. Because at one point, New Horizons was the fastest launch ever from Earth, mm. and at one point it was pulling uh, something like 14 Gs, um, and you wouldn't want to put people through that. So you might want a slightly gentler launch. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, John? Are we going to are we gonna get to Pluto, and will, will it take a long time to get there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we'd, I'm, we can't imagine what kind of rockets would be used to do that to send people. I mean, you think of the size of the moon rocket that was required to send people just as far as the moon, a quarter of a million miles away. And uh, you need some hugely bigger rocket to send humans and all the, everything they would need to survive that longer trip. And also all the fuel they would need to slow down when they got there because mm. New Horizons was going 30,000 plus miles an hour when it reached Pluto and it had no way of slowing down. So we just zipped past there and took as many pictures as we could as we went past. Um, but humans aren't going to want to do that. They're going to want to slow down and stop and look around. And, mm -hmm. Rubbernecking, uh, rubbernecking. Get to know the yeah. place. And so you have to carry a huge amount more fuel to slow you down again, which means you even need a bigger rocket to carry that extra fuel. And so it would require technology that we don't have yet. Um, maybe some kind of nuclear electric propulsion, um, warp drive, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's much harder and, to send and people. So it's a little hard to speculate. <laughs> it's much harder to send people for all kinds of reasons. And I mean, one thing to be aware of is New Horizons was almost the smallest 
and fastest spacecraft we could send. Just getting to Pluto with anything. It was literally a tiny spacecraft on a huge rocket. And it just blasted there. It had no way of slowing down. So as John said, you know, to do an orbiter, you need a much bigger launch because you have to bring another rocket in the fuel to slow right. down. Yeah. And then if you're bringing people, you have to keep them alive. And it's much harder to keep people alive than machines. So mm. right away, you're talking about a, a much larger spacecraft. Yeah. Um, and the other alternative is a one-way trip. So, uh, yeah, but you want them to at least be alive when they get there. Well, that is true. <laughs> Even if you're not going to bring them back. <laughs> Guys, take some pictures and send it back. And uh, by, by the way, that whole return trip thing, we've been meaning to talk to you about that. Uh, cool, man. All right, let's... Um, Holly Ann Lang. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I believe this, uh, I think it's the tardigrade, right? Okay. Do we know of any other creature besides the tardigrade that could live on Pluto? Okay. We're going to have to uh, take a break here, but uh, when, when we come back, we'll talk about tardigrades yes. on Pluto. You're listening to <laughs> Star Talk All Stars. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon. I'm here with Chuck Nice. That's right. And we've got our guest, John Spencer, uh, planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute and a uh, member of the science team of the New Horizons spacecraft. And uh, we've been talking uh, about Pluto. And uh, we're at the moment, we're musing about the possibility of tardigrades, mm -hmm. or other creatures possibly living somewhere on Pluto, not necessarily on the surface. What do you think, John? Life on Pluto? Or in Pluto? Well, <laughs> um, life on the surface of Pluto, uh, any, anything from Earth, tardigrades, or bacteria, um, is not going to survive on the surface of Pluto, just because it's so darn cold. Mm -hmm. um, there's really no way to keep uh, biological systems going at 40 degrees above absolute zero, which is the surface temperature on on Pluto. But we do think, as you mentioned, David, that deep down and uh, hundreds of miles below the surface, under hundreds of miles of cold ice, there might well be liquid water uh, at the base of that ice, kept warm by the radioactive heat from the interior and all those many, many miles of insulating ice that slow down the loss of that heat to space. And so we've no idea of the conditions in that liquid water ocean, if you want to call it that. Uh, we don't really know how warm it would be, though it might be close to the temperature of uh, water, of, of oceans here on the Earth. Um, and we don't know anything about its composition. It might be incredibly salty or incredibly acidic. Um, but they, if there's liquid water, that's one of the key ingredients for life. The other one that is a little harder to understand how you could have it on Pluto is you need chemical energy continually input into the system uh, that life can feed off. And on the Earth, we have sunlight that does that. Um, in the Earth's ocean, we have some uh, heat from geological activity, from black smokers and things like that that can do that. But the Earth is very geologically active and can generate a lot of that chemistry in its interior, we're not sure that Pluto can. So it could be that you have water down there, but you just don't have any chemical energy. There's no food, in, in other words. There might be nothing, um, nothing to eat in the ocean of Pluto. Um, you know what, before you go any further, just for somebody who may not know, uh, you want to give them what this tardigrade is? I mean, I don't mm. think I even know. I know what they look like. They look like uh, a tick with a butthole for a face. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, tar- so, tardigrades th- are these uh, bizarre creatures. If you you should um, Google them and look at their pictures. Yeah. They're, they're called water bears or tardigrades. They're actually animals. They're not microbes. They're very tiny animals. Um, they live on uh, the surfaces of, of certain kinds of leaves in nature, veg- vegetable matter, and the, but they're sort of everywhere because they're, they're very hard to kill. Mm-hmm. They've um, we've had them out in space and brought them back down, and they, they they're immune to uh, huge doses of radiation. You can literally freeze them and then years later thaw them out and they live. They 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 seem almost designed to live in outer space. They're very hardy. Organisms and so astrobiologists are are uh, fascinated with tardigrades. But but as John said, even um, even tardigrades wouldn't be able to live on the surface of Pluto. I mean, they might sort of be in suspended animation there for a while, but there's there's no way they could metabolize. They could do the the chemistry that that life needs to be able to do at those temperatures. Cool, cool, the tardigrade. Uh, God, I want some of that in my life. Um, <laughs> Let's go to food for thought. And he says, or she says, uh, what is the chance that humans will eventually live on Mars? This is a Mars colonization, of course. Considering that the ground is poisonous, the atmosphere is thin, uh, there's a shortage of oxygen and water, and a weak magnetic field. Well, I think, uh, despite all that, there are very good chances, huh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, the question is, is a good one. I mean, it's not as easy a place to go live as um, we might imagine from watching, you know, um, the Martian Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, depiction. Well, the Martian's pretty good. You know, they get, they um, didn't get everything right, but they got, got a lot right. And in fact, one thing you get from watching the Martian is that it's pretty hard to survive on Mars. Even mm-hmm. if you're this really smart guy, you still want to get the heck out of there. Um, but um, it, it it's it's going to be difficult, but again, like I said about Pluto, I believe it will happen because of human nature. Because it's some, there's something about us that is uh, uh, seems to have in our genes the desire to explore and go live in new places and modify environments so that we can live in them. And I bet it's going to be harder to live on Mars than than we think. And the f- first attempts might might fail. But I I do uh, personally, if, um, at my crystal ball, which is muddy, but to the extent I can see the future in it, I I see that people will eventually uh, live on Mars. Uh, did you have any thoughts about that, John? Um, no, I'm I'm with you. It's it's doable, um, but it's it's difficult, and a lot will. We could certainly do it if we really, 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 really wanted to. And uh, we're prepared to spend the resources uh, to do it. So it's going to come down to motivation and uh, whether people are motivated enough to invest the enormous expense in uh, and just the difficulty of it. I don't think it would be a particularly pleasant place to live compared mm-hmm. to the Earth. All I, all I can tell you is this. If the, fir- if the first few attempts fa- uh, fail, um, if the first few attempts fail, got a feeling you might have a lot fewer attempts after that. Yeah, but people are persistent. People are stubborn. And at least uh, Elon Musk is very rich. Well, there you have it. But I guarantee <laughs> you this. 
Elon Musk will not be first in line to go live on Mars. <laughs> no, but he'll pay somebody well to go try it. There you go. There you go. Okay, so Segwell3 would like to know this coming to us from Instagram. How do ice ridges on Pluto differ from ice ridges on Earth? To what extent does its chemical makeup affect its behavior when compared to, say, um, ice in Antarctica? Well, that's it. That's a good one. So, yeah, John, uh, what do you think? Uh, how would you compare, um, say, an ice ridge in, in Antarctica to an ice formation on Pluto? Well, if you compare water ice on the Earth, uh, which is warm enough that it can flow to nitrogen ice on Pluto, which is warm enough that it can flow on Pluto, um, there, is, there is a lot that they have in common. Uh, in fact, we see glaciers on Pluto that look amazingly like the glaciers on Earth. The only difference being that the ones on Pluto are made of nitrogen, not of, of water ice. But we see them flowing down uh, out of the mountains and carving channels um, and spreading out form ice sheets. Um, and they're a lot like that. Um, a big difference, though, with what we see in Antarctica is that the Antarctic ice sheet doesn't convect, uh, the ice piles up and it stays pretty much uh, just in layers until it gradually sags and flows outwards towards the ocean. Uh, whereas on Pluto, because nitrogen ice is that much softer, the amount of heat coming out of the interior is enough to make it convect. So if you can imagine uh, somebody turning up the heat, the geothermal heat underneath the Antarctic ice cap un until the ice at the bottom begins to expand, uh, heat up and expand and push its way up to the surface and then push down the ice next to it. So the whole thing is churning and convecting. Then that would be something like what we see happening on, on Pluto. So in that respect, it's very different from anything that we see on the Earth. So the natural analogy really to Antarctica. In Antarctica, you have these mountains of rock that then are have uh, glaciers of water ice flowing on them. And the real analogy to Pluto is that the mountains there are the water ice and the stuff flowing down them are, are the nitrogen glaciers. It's That's right. Yeah, pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> what else you got, Chuck? All right, let's move on to anti-anti-social club. <laughs> coming to I like us. that. That's got a, got a ring to it. Anti-anti-social club. Coming to us from Instagram says this. After humans got to the moon, the sense of discovery and pushing further into space was lost by the American people and is only now reappearing. Do you think that after we get to Mars, the same thing will happen? Or will we keep going? Huh. Well, you know... I'm going to differ a little bit. Okay. We never stopped being interested and in pushing into space. If you look at the planetary exploration, um, you know, the funding decreased a little bit. But look at what we did after the moon. We sent missions to, to Mars. We sent uh, the Voyagers to the outer solar system. And then we went back to the outer solar system with Galileo and Cassini and New Horizons. We've had missions to Mercury. We've had missions to Venus. So we've... We've kept going. As far as human exploration, yeah, I mean, that stalled because really the motivation for that was the Cold War. Mm -hmm. We were trying to convince the Russians that we could blow them up with our big rockets. And then once we had been to the moon, we said, eh, we've done that. If, if we go to, the Mars, uh, go to Mars with sort of a similar short-sighted 
plan, then yeah, it might stall again. It's really a question of going for the right reasons and thinking through what our motivations are. And maybe maybe this time we'll uh, it'll be a little bit different and we'll go with a, with a longer-term plan and stick to it. We have to find a way to tie Mars to world domination. <laughs> if we can do that, we will definitely go there. Everybody will want to go there. Like, if you get to Mars, you'll actually rule the world. Well, it depends which world you're talking about. If you go to Mars, you could dominate Mars. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's actually very See, true. Pretty soon, the, point, the, the term world domination, you'll be, there'll be multiple worlds you could dominate. Yeah, okay. I actually like that idea. If you, if you go out to the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt, then everybody could have their own world and be the, the king of the world. I, I believe that is the whole um, reward system for the Mormon faith. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's not funny. They actually believe. Is that your image of the afterlife? Yeah, that that's, that's my Mormon afterlife. Is everybody that everybody their, gets their own their world. Their own Kuiper Belt. Obviously. Yeah, as you go to the Kuiper Belt, we all get our own little planet. And depending upon how good you were here on Earth is the size of your planet. You know, which means I'll probably be on an asteroid that's leaving the solar system. I think this is Chuck's faith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making up my own religion right now, people. Get on board. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's. Uh, Mike Koch wants to know this, coming to us from Twitter. Hey, friends, given proximity, would Pluto be better served as a place to have a base to refuel, regroup before longer trips? So this, Mike is really thinking ahead. He's actually got it where we are interstellar. We are not just interplanetary. We're leaving the solar system, and Pluto is our gas station. Wow. John, can you imagine a time? Obviously, it's not going to be in the next decade or <laughs> century, but can you imagine a time when Pluto would be used as some kind of a way station for trips farther out? Well, I suppose you could... Uh, if you chose to power a rocket uh, with stuff that's available on Pluto, you could um, maybe make that work. Uh, rockets require uh, both uh, fuel that might be some kind of hydrocarbon like you could find on Pluto, um, but then you need oxygen to burn that with. And so um, you're not going to find the oxygen on Pluto. Uh, but if you took enough oxygen and you ran out of hydrocarbons, then maybe you could you could top up with those at Pluto because there's certainly lots of methane and ethane and uh, other materials that could be used with fuel if you brought along enough oxygen to But wait a minute, aren't the, those small moon those small moons of Pluto they're they're uh, they seem to be made out of water, don't they? Mhm. Mm so yep. maybe you could get the oxygen there. Yeah, you'd have to find a way of cracking that water ah. and getting the hydrogen the oxygen out of it. Um, and uh, so yeah, you'd have to set up a long-term project with um uh, some, I don't know, nuclear cracking facility or something to do that. So, yeah, we, we're talking pretty ambitious here. Let's write yeah. up a business plan and send it to Elon. Yeah, I was going to say, the, <laughs> uh, the answer to your question is not in your lifetime. All right, we have, I think we have time for one more quick cosmic query, Chuck. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Um, if I could walk around on Pluto, how well could I see... Would it be pitch black, or does it have a good amount of light? I think this person is looking to uh, pick up some real estate, looking for... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, I, I know you were involved in um, planning a lot of the 
pictures for uh, New Horizons, a lot of the uh, exposure. So you're probably very uh, intimately familiar with the illumination levels on Pluto. How, how does it compare to, say, a, a, a cloudy day on Earth? It's, it's pretty dim out there. The, uh, we're, you're 30 times further from the sun than we are here on Earth, even at Pluto's closest to the sun. Um, and that means the sunlight is about a thousand times dimmer than it is here on Earth, hmm. um, which sounds like, oh, you'd just be blundering around in the dark. But in fact, the human eye is incredibly uh, 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 adaptable to different amounts of light. And if you're walking around on a moonlit night of, under a full moon, which you can do without uh, probably running into things too much, uh, that's a million times dimmer than than daylight. So... Pluto is way brighter than the full moon here on Earth. Um, and in fact, it's more like uh, sort of a nice romantic restaurant wow. where Ooh. you have the light is, is dim, but you can see perfectly well. And you could, you could read a newspaper if you probably wouldn't want to do that at wow. a romantic restaurant. Cand but, candlelight. Mm. Yes. Um, wow. Sexy and Pluto. And so you could, you could see very comfortably there. Wow, you make, it, off your sunglasses. you make it sound pretty nice, John. I think maybe we should yeah. all go. <laughs> Let me tell you something, girl. I'm going to take you to Pluto. Some guys want to take their woman to the moon. It sounds cold, but the lighting is nice. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, on that romantic note, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, it's been really fun. We could talk about this for, for hours, but um, I want to thank our guest, John Spencer from the uh, Southwest Research Institute and from the New Horizons team. Thanks a lot, John, for, uh, for joining us on Star Talk All-Stars. Thanks for having me. That was fun. And uh, on behalf of Chuck Nice. That's right. And all the Star Talk All-Stars. You've been listening to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm David Grinspoon. Keep exploring, keep asking questions, and always keep it funky. Keep it funky.